I see that the uh, exciting, scintillating, much-coveted after-lunch speaker <laughs> slot has been reserved for me, so I will do my best to keep everyone awake. I won't attest to my full orthodoxy, but I will try to keep you awake. That was a joke. I am an orthodox Christian. Um, despite what you might have heard, uh, Eric asked me to <clears throat> say something briefly about the Runner Academy, which is actually the uh, H. Evan Runner Academy, named after a uh, prominent, now deceased, worldview, reformed worldview theologian. Has anybody um, read anything or know about the Ezra Institute, Dr. Joe Boot in Canada? He's got a lot of uh, works available online. His ministry uh, is basically uh, closely aligned with CCL. We're kind of the counterpart ministries, one in Canada, one in the U.S. Um, but the, the Runner Academy is essentially a really intense, enjoyable, two-week worldview program for 19-year-olds to 39-year-olds, though those edges are not absolute, um, in which uh, godly young people who are thoughtful, who want a fairly intense worldview training, by intense I don't mean esoteric, but uh, thoughtful, serious thinkers are invited to get together and worship and uh, work and play uh, and uh, all in the context of the inculcation and development of a Christian worldview. This kind of training, whatever it is called, has been needed throughout the history of the church in one form or another. But I think today in the West with our competing ideologies that are frankly at war with our young people, uh, it's more needed than ever. So I hope that... Um, Oh, incidentally, the, <clears throat> the next one will be in uh, beautiful uh, golden British Columbia, um, which is in, let's see, what is that, eastern British Columbia by, by about four or five spectacular national parks, Canadian Rockies, great location, a great venue. Uh, then there's uh, scheduled, tentatively one scheduled for Florida, <coughs> excuse me, next, uh, uh, next year, uh, January of 2023. Uh, and then we hope... Um, perhaps one in Minnesota, uh, starting um, maybe a truncated version, a weekend, or, I don't know, three or four days, maybe midweek, two midweeks, two weekend, or something like that. We definitely want to go places where there is a hunger for the kind of Christian training that is not simply Christian campfire training. I'm not attacking that, but we've had enough of that, thank you. We need to be training Christian young people and young adults to think Christianly in all areas of life and thought. I mean, so the lectures are on everything from a Christian worldview, cultural theology, what does that mean, uh, combating cultural Marxism, uh, twisted views of um, economics, uh, covenant and kingdom, what is the covenant, what is the kingdom of God, what is the church's responsibility, what is culture, uh, what is, and it extended the two-week version, some of us were talking earlier, Christian view of the arts, uh, Christian view of science. Um, just, I mean, that's just touching the surface. I think I've got six or seven lectures on a bunch of stuff, and there are all sorts of uh, sharp people there lecturing. So I would urge you uh, to check that out. Go online to, uh, I don't know the offhand, the specific um, URL, but just 
check uh, Ezra, Ezra Institute, um, Ontario, and look under the programs, and there's a beautiful promotional uh, video for this. And uh, parents, grandparents, <coughs> uh, pastors urge young people <coughs> to attend. If you're even in your 20s, 30s, it's not that expensive. It's definitely underwritten. And by the way, you pastors, uh, and again, those of grandparents maybe have a little money, this is a great way, maybe sponsor a student. In fact, I think it's for the two-week program in Golden. I think because it's so heavily funded, I think it's like um, for the program itself, maybe U.S. dollars is maybe $1,500, and that's all the gorgeous accommodations, meals, trips, everything. Just got to fly to get there and get home. But to think about that, check that out, and I hope that something in Minnesota will materialize. Uh, just real quickly, speak survey. And how many of you here, if that were offered in Minnesota, would you at least be interested in investigating that and maybe supporting it, inviting people to come? Would you raise your hand? Higher. I want to see. Okay, good. I can go back and tell Joe Boot, hey, buddy, you need to meet these people, and uh, we need to do something in Minnesota. All right, that's great. So <clears throat> was that commercial good enough? Eric, was that good that enough? Was All right, cool. Maybe he'll give me a cut of the proceeds or something. I don't know. No, not really. Um, all right. This topic is um, unusual. I suspect you might not have heard this topic addressed before, but I believe it's one that young people interested in the faith really need to hear. Uh, as we read our Bibles, we tend to encounter uh, two different, the legitimate ways of practicing our faith. Two ways of being Christian in the world. I don't mean zealous Christianity versus lackadaisical Christianity. Uh, lackadaisical Christianity is actually sub-Christian. <laughs> All of us can fall into it, and we have, but that's not a way of being Christian in the world. It's a way of uh, Christians being sub-Christian. So I'm not criticizing that. I'm speaking of two legitimate ways to practice the Christian faith and we find godly saints in the Bible practicing either one or the other, and in some cases, both simultaneously. In fact, we could never have had the Christian faith in the first place without both of these kinds of Christian experience and practice. Today, however, I'm going to urge you, particularly you young people, to concentrate on one practice and keep the other one in the background. This is not because one is bad and the other is good, but because one is normal and the other is exceptional. And I am asking you this afternoon to live within Christian normality, normal Christianity. He says, well, Andrew, what in the world is that? Well, I'm glad you asked because that's what I'm talking about. But first, let's consider the alternative, extraordinary Christianity. It appears a number of places in the Bible. Its foundation is in the Old Testament, in God's dealings with Israel in the Exodus and in the wilderness, the ministry of prophets like Elijah and Elisha. And of course, we could go back to the very beginning, creation, obviously. But the truest exhibition in the primitive church is probably in Acts chapter 2, where God poured out his spirit and he manifested himself in spectacular, supernatural ways, miraculous speaking in tongues, numerous languages. And then moving forward in Luke's narrative, we read of numerous exorcisms and healings, God killing liars in the church, a lying couple, 
Sick people healed later uh, simply by testing Paul's handkerchief and evangelists being whisked away by the Holy Spirit from the presence of his new convert and other extraordinary events. Can you imagine how exciting it must have been to be one of those first Christians? Exciting and perhaps a little frightening. (laughs) Of course, a number of these extraordinary manifestations accompanied the earthly ministry of our Lord himself, particularly healing and exorcism. But they seemed to multiply during the apostolic period. Disciples held a home prayer meeting and implored God to deliver Peter, who was in prison for preaching the gospel. Well, God opened the prison doors. He answered their prayer, did just that. The saints were so surprised at this supernatural answered prayer that they didn't believe the answer at first when it happened. For a Christian, what a time to be alive. I'm sure that sometimes as we read these accounts, as I do, just recently read through Acts again, our hearts burn. And we can only imagine what it was like to have lived as a follower of our Lord during this time. Perhaps we even wistfully consider ourselves in an inferior situation, since these kinds of extraordinary events no longer seem to happen, or only rarely happen. And then we see about us all sorts of artificial manufacturing of these kinds of events. Faith healers, Benny Hinn, silly false prophets, and so on. Well, if we care deeply about our faith, as well as the Christian faith in the world, we might be tempted to go in one of two directions. First, we might long so much for those supernatural apostolic days that we're constantly attempting to reproduce them in our own lives. And second, when we can't reproduce that extraordinary Christianity, we resign ourselves to tolerating what we consider second-rate Christian experience. I'd like to contest that view this afternoon. (coughs) Excuse me. I'd like to make the case that although extraordinary Christianity has been necessary for God's work in the world, and while it occasionally appears here and there, I'd like to suggest that what I'll term the ordinary means of grace is every bit as important, every bit as satisfying, every bit as exciting, and every bit as necessary as extraordinary Christianity. First, it's important to remember that extraordinary Christianity is abnormal. And it was meant to be abnormal. The roots were in the Old Testament. The great miracles of the Old Testament seem to be concentrated in historical clumps. Have you ever noticed that? Think about the plagues in Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea and the subsequent wilderness experience of the Jews. But after they finally settled in Canaan, there's little record of these extraordinary manifestations until prophets like Elijah and Elisha come along. And then in the intertestamental period, the historical period between uh, the end of the Old Testament and then the New Testament, uh, there's no record of any extraordinary religion, as I'm defining it. And then, of course, it's obvious in the New Testament that our Lord's and the Apostles' ministry reflected a revived extraordinary Christianity. Now, it's interesting, however, that uh, in the non-narrative writings of the New Testament, like the epistles, there's little emphasis on this extraordinary Christianity. And where there is, as in tongues and prophecies, it seems balanced out by ordinary Christianity, which I'll define in a minute. 
Much of the Old Testament, I'm sorry, much of the New Testament after Acts is basically an emphasis on the ordinary means of grace, which could also be labeled normal Christianity. Though most of the epistles were written during the historical period that Acts covers. So there has to be a reason for that. Second, why extraordinary Christianity at all? Well, because our faith is rooted in miraculous historical events. Jesus Christ was the Son of God, born of a human. The incarnation was a miracle if there ever was one, including his virgin birth. His death on the cross didn't generally appear extraordinary to most human eyes, certainly not miraculous. Lots of people were crucified. But certain episodes around it certainly were. (laughs) The blackened sky, the great earthquake, the most important miracle in the Bible was almost certainly the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Christ weren't raised, we're still dead in our sins and we're miserably deluded, Paul says. Christianity is an extraordinary faith, and if it were not extraordinary, it wouldn't be true. These events surrounding Jesus Christ's great redemptive work were necessary as testimonies to its extraordinary nature. Therefore, to undermine those extraordinary events, as 20th century theologians like Boltmann and others have done. It's just to deny the faith. It's just to gut it. Don't claim to be a Christian if you don't have those extraordinary events. Christianity is a supernatural religion, full stop. But, and third, extraordinary Christianity didn't last, and it wasn't meant to last. Why? Because extraordinary Christianity was designed to lay the foundation for the ordinary means of grace. If we experience the ordinary all the time, it would no longer be extraordinary. God had something better in mind for his people after the apostolic generation. Ordinary Christianity. Or I could say the routinization of the Christian faith. God didn't keep repeating the extraordinary because the extraordinary becomes a part of our very lives and over time the entire world. Unfortunately, many well-meaning Christians want to turn ordinary or normal Christianity into extraordinary or abnormal Christianity. Fourth, this approach starts with conversion. Uh, Over the last 200 years in particular, there's been a heightened emphasis on the conversion experience. How many of you know what I'm talking about when I talk about the conversion experience? Okay. There's been a great stress on the psychology of making a public decision for Jesus Christ at a church service, uh, perhaps another meeting, religious Christian meeting, perhaps walking to the front of the meeting at the conclusion at at an altar call. There must be, in any case, a conscious, immediate decision, and it must be dramatic in one way or another. (coughs) The Apostle Paul's Damascus Road experience becomes almost a paradigm for any genuine conversion, aside from, of course, getting knocked off a horse, and aside from a loud voice, and so on. Aside from that, it's become sort of a paradigm. Now, despite the popularity of this view, there's nothing whatsoever biblical about it. The Greek word translated conversion is found only rarely in the New Testament, and it has nothing whatsoever to do with one's psychological condition or a dramatic experience. It simply means to turn or change. It's related to repentance. We repent and are converted. Now, some sinners, like Paul, are converted in this dramatic way. Most others are not. For instance, when was Peter converted? Well, the Bible's not at all clear about that. There's no single dramatic experience. 
And if you read the Gospels carefully, you'll see the disciples, Peter, others from time to time, oh, Lord, we believe. We follow you. Then later on they say, oh, now we really believe. Then later on after the resurrection, yes, now we truly believe. Well, I mean, which, which one was the real, real, real one? Conversion certainly is an experience, and it's necessary to salvation, but the Bible doesn't tell us what it looks like. As J.I. Packer pointed out, the important thing in the Bible isn't the experience of conversion, but the fact of conversion. Fifth, this conversionism poses other problems, big problems, particularly for young people from Christian homes. And here I want you young people to be listening very carefully to me. If you hear the gospel from your infancy, as I did, you might never remember your conversion experience. Um, I don't remember mine. Um, I believe I must have been four or five years old. I know I was converted, but I don't remember getting converted. This, by the way, isn't just a valid conversion experience. It is the most desirable conversion experience of all. If you believe that the highest conversion experience is of adult sinners who've fallen deeply into depravity and are later converted in a dramatic way, you're really saying that we should believe that sin may abound. God forbid. Now, none of us is born a Christian. We're all born into sin. But in a Christian home and in a Christian church, the gospel should so envelop the minds and hearts of infants and small children that they trust Christ at such a tender age that they might not even be able to remember the experience. That, my friends, is a beautiful thing. It's remarkable how many Christians believe that children in Christian homes must grow up so they can have a dramatic conversion experience. By the way, this is just the opposite of biblical teaching. Um, the Bible teaches that adults must have a childlike conversion experience. In God's covenant economy, youthful conversion is normal, and adult conversion is the exception. By the way, this view has no logical bearing on the practice of baptism. Whether you're a credo-baptist or a pedo-baptist, youthful conversion should be the normal paradigm. In any case, the important fact is that we're trusting Christ not when we first began to trust Christ. Whether our conversion was so dramatic as to be unforgettable, or so early as to be unknown, is irrelevant. The extraordinary truth surrounding conversion is that God is accomplishing it. The extraordinary factor is not an extraordinary experience that must accompany it. Sixth, this extraordinary conversionism is carried over into the Christian life. That is, extraordinary Christians try to keep alive and revive the kind of dramatic experience they had or thought they had at conversion. This is a remarkably recent historical phenomenon. It didn't begin before the 18th century, to my knowledge. It accelerated during the 19th century in the Second Great Awakening. You don't find any of the reformers talking this way or advocating this kind of extraordinary Christian life. Not Luther, not Calvin, not Zwingli, not Knox, and not the early Baptists. Just as conversionism began basically in the 19th century with the stress on sudden Dramatic conversions and the anxious bench, it was called, and then later the altar call. So extraordinary Christianity as a way of ordinary Christian living began in the 18th and the 19th centuries. I must say it's especially suitable for the modern world. 
It's been said that Americans are suckers for transformational moments. That is, they like to make dramatic changes in short periods of time. They want to live a life of ingrained bad habits, bad mental habits, bad spending habits, bad sexual habits, bad conversational habits, bad relational habits, and then attend a Tony Robbins conference on a weekend and alter their entire lives. You spend 20 years making bad decisions, but come give me $1,500 for this weekend, Tony Robbins weekend, and you can walk on hot coals and do things you've never known, and your life will be forever transformed. It's the lottery mentality. They wish to spend their lives unwisely and then in a moment of time reverse decades of ingrained behavior. The long, this longing for transformational moments is also, by the way, a mark of all modern political revolutions. Uh, they're all stamped with the desire to make dramatic, society-altering changes in a very short period of time. And they will acknowledge that. In fact, secular revolutions like Marxism are a form of mass secular conversionism. Extraordinary Christians can never be satisfied with normal Christianity. They're always unsatisfied unless they're practicing something dramatic, emotional, exciting, and in some cases flamboyant and bizarre. They must be getting personal prophetic words or experiencing miraculous healings or listening to pulse-pounding Christian rock or planning for next summer's missions trip to Mexico. Often, they're convinced, sometimes by their churches, that the highest form of Christianity, the most extraordinary Christianity, can be practiced only if one is in full-time Christian service. This means as a full-time employee of the church, a pastor perhaps, uh, or a Christian teacher, or a missionary, other vocations are acceptable, but they're actually secular vocations, and they lead us away from extraordinary Christianity. If we're going to be extraordinary Christians, we need to get into extraordinary vocations, and that means full-time Christian service. It's ironic when evangelicals talk this way, the same evangelicals who are aggressively anti-Roman Catholic. Because this spiritual hierarchy of vocations is a deeply Roman Catholic idea. The most spiritual ones are the clergy, or if women, the, the, the nuns. The, the lay folk are valid and necessary, but they can never quite achieve the level of spirituality of the clergy. This hierarchy of spiritual vocations also tends to assume a secular sacred divide. The Christian ministry is sacred, and everything outside of it, if not fully secular, is at least close to secularism. Young people know this. If you found your place in God's world and you're doing what God calls you to do, there's no higher calling for you. Washing windows or writing computer code or caring for hospital patients or selling automobiles or real estate or overseeing capital investment is not one bit inferior to being a pastor or Christian school teacher or a missionary if God has called you to it. We sometimes hear of people surrendering to preach. This is a blessing. It will be an even greater blessing when more Christians surrender their lives to a godly entertainment vocation, like movie script writing or writing new computer apps or serving as a nurse or a plumber or a barista or a bricklayer. And the fact that that would rub people the wrong way, I've given in to the Lord and surrendered to be a nurse and to do it for the glory of God. Well, good for you. Be better if you, better, you know, if you were a Christian school teacher. No, it wouldn't. Not if that's what God called the person to do. 
There are no secondary callings to people who know their place in God's world. Unfortunately, the extraordinary Christians almost miss this point. Seventh, extraordinary Christianity demands an extraordinary church, or better, the experience of the extraordinary in a church. Normal church life is inferior. Two big examples of this ecclesial extraordinariness come to mind. The first is of some of the older evangelical churches from the 50s through the 70s. The Sunday morning church service was basically a scaled-down Billy Graham crusade. <coughs> at the Graham crusades, the experience of conversion was at the heart. There was warm gospel music, and Graham preached a powerful gospel message, and he immediately invited listeners to come to the front near the podium and trust Christ and take their stand for him. And the numbers coming forward were counted as conversions. Well, this extraordinary crusade Christianity was easy to transfer to an extraordinary ecclesial, churchly Christianity. Every Sunday morning consisted essentially of warm gospel music, a stirring a gospel message, and then an energetic altar call. That was the heart of Sunday morning worship. Now, there's been a dramatic shift in the ecclesial extraordinary over the last 30 years. The charismatic movement has had a profound effect on evangelicalism, even among evangelicals that oppose tongues talking and prophecies to the hilt. The center of worship is no longer the evangelistic crusade, but rather worship music and the worship experience. There's a praise band, and if the church is large enough, a sort of laser light show with the audience as spectators more than participants. Basically, they're attending a Christian music concert every Sunday morning with a spiritual motivational speech, sermon, tacked on. The musicians are largely professionals, or would-be professionals, and the pastor's more of a storyteller, uh, a therapist, who guides the congregation in how to live more successful spiritual lives. But the heart is the extraordinary experience of worship. Repetitive, rhythmic music, known as praise songs, usually pretty heavy bass guitars and drums, and the creation of a particular emotional atmosphere. I'm not criticizing bass guitars or drums or rhythm or emotion. I'm suggesting that in much, much of modern evangelical worship, what counts for the church is the extraordinary church service cultivated by extraordinary emotional highs every Sunday morning. I'll never forget a comment by a real well-seasoned minister at a conference he and I were both addressing years ago. We were both standing outside in the hallway uh, listening to the conference delegates as part of a, a modified praise service they are involved in, sort of an interlude. And he said to me quietly, those young people think that what they're doing is identical to worship. An extraordinary uh, emotional collective experience is thought to be equal to worship. And this is supposed to happen and expected to happen every Sunday morning. This is an example of what Thomas E. Burglar has called the uh, juvenilization of the American church. He writes this. 50 or 60 years ago, these now common elements of American church life, those like I just mentioned, were regularly found in youth groups, but rarely in worship services and adult activities. Juvenilization is the process by which the religious beliefs, practices, and developmental characteristics of adolescents become accepted as appropriate for adults. We live in a youth culture 
and the evangelical church has reoriented the church to that culture. The church has worked at, he writes this, quote, making the Christian life more emotionally satisfying. Passion was in, he writes, duty was out. This kind of individualized emotional connection to God sustained religious interest in a changing society in which custom, tradition, and social pressure would no longer motivate people to care about faith or attend church. Basically, Bergler notes, this is the church's aversion to growing up. The church must be extraordinary, and it must be extraordinary every week, all the time, or we will go somewhere else to satiate our extraordinariness addiction. Now, and this is shorter, for those of you that are asleep, you can wake up. Now let's turn to the ordinary means of grace as a second way of being a Christian in God's world. You probably formed some idea of where I'm headed, if you're thinking. I invoked Acts 2 as an example of extraordinary Christianity in the early church. For alternative uh, version, I'd like you to consider Acts chapter 6. Right in the middle of this narrative of all this extraordinary Christianity, Luke thought it necessary to record what must have been a very significant event in the primitive church. In all of the extraordinary excitement, Hellenistic Jewish widows in the church, that is the Greek-speaking Jewish widows, were being forgotten in the distribution of material provision. Now remember that the early church had voluntarily sold their possessions and given the apostles the responsibility to distribute to those who had material need. Well, the Hellenistic Jewish widows were getting a share, but somehow the other Hebrew, Hebrew widows weren't. So after prayer, the apostles selected a group of seven whose specific responsibility was to administer those material provisions to the worthy needy in the church. Now some people believe this is where the diaconate began. The Bible didn't say that. There was nothing extraordinary about this episode, not as I'm defining. God didn't send manna from heaven to provide for the neglected widows. Dispersing church resources properly is not a matter of extraordinary Christianity, but ordinary Christianity. But Luke thought it was important enough to include right in the middle of this extraordinary narrative. I suggest that this ordinary Christianity is in no way inferior to extraordinary Christianity, and that each is essential in its own place, and that ordinary Christianity is the sort, is the sort we should, well, ordinarily practice and not seek extraordinary Christianity all the time. A big part of ordinary Christianity is making use of the ordinary means of grace. This means that Christians must develop holy habits, and I would urge you to do that, young people, while you're young. Develop holy habits. Don't constantly chase after the extraordinary. Special revelations, the next missions trip, or coffee house Christianity. By the last, I mean attempts to get into a holy huddle with the cool, young, hip folks and leave the church to the old fogies. The fact is, aside from the Bible and prayer, there's probably no greater ordinary means of grace than the church. The church isn't just Christ's body. It isn't just the pillar and support of truth. It isn't just God's flock. It's also his chosen vehicle for pouring out his blessing on his people. It keeps us under the discipline of the word and the ordinances or sacraments. It keeps us near God's people whom we need and who need us. It keeps us under the consistent sound of the gospel. Of course, I'm assuming God-honoring churches and not weak churches or apostate churches. Now, 
A, uh, a confluence of cultural factors militates against the church today. Uh, there are a lot of them. I'm just going to mention one or two. The obvious one is digital technology. There's nothing wrong with this technology. It's being greatly used of the Lord for his glory. But in some ways, it's also been used to diminish the church. For example, there are a number of gifted celebrity pastors whose sermons you can stream or download with a click of the finger. And that preacher might have, a greater, have greater rhetorical or intellectual gifts than your local pastor. And after a while, you get the sense that your pastor doesn't quite measure up, and you start turning to a faraway, gifted celebrity for your spiritual feeding. This isn't just a mistake. It is potentially a catastrophic mistake. If you're attending a faithful church, the preaching you hear there is more important than the preaching you hear from Dr. So-and-so, who pastors a church of 4,000. God chose the ordinary preaching of ordinary preachers in ordinary churches to benefit the ordinary people attending that church. Your pastor and other elders are aware of specific needs of the congregation, and their preaching will often be used to meet those needs. A celebrity pastor far away cannot know those needs. For this reason, while you can get Excuse me, get blessing from biblical preaching anywhere. God won't bless you with digitally delivered preaching like he will with local in-person preaching. <coughs> What's true of preaching might be even truer of music. Smaller and mid-sized churches simply can't compete with the resources of megachurches. They can enlist professional musicians the highest quality musical instruments and audio equipment, and a venue that can present worship music as a weekly concert. It's impossible to duplicate this extraordinary performance in smaller churches. But they often try, including second-rate guitarists and uh, wannabe musicians. Oh, I want to sing like Carrie Underwood, but I really want to sing Gospel Baby. A big reason this problem developed in the first place is because of the gradual shift from congregational singing to congregational observing. Um, I realize the pastors probably at the Common Slaves event don't necessarily have to hear this, but uh, men, elders, you're in charge of the music. Never outsource the music to the, the music team, the music pastor. Uh, some say, I've heard them say, well, we, we hired them to do that and we're paying them a lot of money. Uh, your job is the responsibility of the church, including the music. So your job is on Tuesday or whenever. Get that set, the musical set for Sunday, and it better not be the same thing as the K-Love set. And if it's music that will really highlight the talent and the ability and the gifts of the musicians and that cool hip guitarist with the tight jeans and, and, and the spotlight coming down on him, mark that song off. Amen. Include a song that everybody can sing and sing well. You want to know one reason why Amazing Grace and Anne Kennedy are still sung? Not just because they're theologically sound, but because people can sing them. The congregations can sing them. They don't have some kind of weird syncopation and a, a chorus that is totally off-kilter from the verse. And the third verse that sounds totally different from the chorus. Uh, 
that's designed to highlight the talents of musicians. Uh, This is a movement away from biblical and Protestant worship. It was the Roman Catholic Church that strongly stressed specially trained musicians in vespers and turned the congregation into an audience. The congregation is not a musical audience. Congregational singing, robust, spirit-filled, and biblical is a hallmark of biblical, uh, public biblical worship. There are few things more powerful than public worship than the congregation accompanied by a piano singing Amazing Grace, or And Can It Be That I Should Gain. Fall in love with ordinary church worship music and don't strive for the extraordinary. Another, I'll move quickly on, uh, ordinary means of grace, sadly undervalued by extraordinary Christians, is the sacraments or ordinances. Protestants rightly reject Roman Catholic transubstantiation, but in overreaction, the extraordinary Christians cut themselves off from this ordinary means of grace. And that's certainly what baptism and the Lord's table are, because the Lord's table is a continuing practice in the church, and baptism isn't. Let's focus on it just for a second. The Lord's Supper, like baptism and like circumcision in the Old Covenant, is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. This means it signifies what God has done, is doing, and will do for us. And when we consume the elements in faith, he seals those benefits to us. So the Lord's Supper does not confer eternal life, but it is a means of sanctification. Now think about this extraordinarily ordinary fact. Bread and wine are simply earthly elements. There's nothing special about them. In uh, fact, they're a combination of creation and culture. The communion elements aren't a grape and a piece of wheat, but wine and bread. God uses these simple, ordinary means to signify and seal his redemptive benefits to us. He's elevating the ordinary to a level of great significance. It's a prime example of sanctifying the ordinary. To bypass the church is to bypass the Lord's Supper because the church is the only institution authorized to administer it. You aren't permitted to serve yourself communion in your home, and civil government certainly isn't permitted to administer communion. This is the meal of the people of God among the family of God, the church of Jesus Christ. And you can't tune in to evangelist so-and-so with 17,000 people in the oh, we're audience. Oh, let's all just celebrate communion together right now. Go find yourself maybe a, maybe a banana and a chocolate milkshake. Whatever elements there are. That is a perversion, prostitution. Next, uh, and moving to the end, uh, consider the fellowship of the church, the communion, the koinonia. It's a means of grace. Paul makes very clear that mutual edifying is a chief role of the church. Uh, <clears throat> the apostolic church included the extraordinary gifts, like tongues and prophecy, but many of the gifts were ordinary, and they were no less real, no less important. This fellowship itself is a gift from God. And it's an ordinary gift, and it's a good gift. I'm going to say this. I uh, didn't intend to say it, but that never stopped me before. If you attend a church that is so large that you really can't, really can't get to know people, the church is too large. It needs to break up and plant churches, sending some of these people off to start a church somewhere. 
You say, but then there probably wouldn't be the brand. We want satellites all over the city to beam Dr. So-and-so's spectacular sermons all over. Yeah, that sounds really cool. You probably read about that in the Bible, too, preserving the brand. If your church is such that there is not the possibility of ordinary koinonia, then it's not really a church. You have to have that. Am I saying one cannot have a megachurch? Can't have a megachurch and still have it? No, I'm not saying that. It's a lot harder, and you have to be very intentional. Another area in which digital technology has unleashed great energy, particularly as a result of the COVID lockdowns. Although Zoom is a wonderful tool, it's not a substitute for the church. The church is the called out community. That's what ecclesia means, translated church. It's very visible. Uh, It's a pinchable reality. If the church can't physically meet, there is no church. If the church can't physically meet, there is no church. The old-timers understood this sort of intuitively better than people today do. It's remarkable. They say, well, we're going to go to church. They, most of the time, did not mean necessarily we're going into a building. They said, we're going to the meeting. A lot of them would say that. We're going we're to go to the meeting today. Well, the meeting, the church, <laughs> properly, of course, under God's authority. So extraordinary Christians either demand an extraordinary church or else bypass the church altogether. Young people, or old for that matter, you simply can't bypass the church and expect to be a good Christian. In fact, I suggest that if you abandon the church altogether, you're no Christian at all. The New Testament has no category for churchless Christians. Had you come to Paul the Apostle and said, you know, there are a group of people out there, they really don't like this church idea, and they're not doing that, but they're, they're kind of out on their own, and <clears throat> they just like to be off, Lord, in a cave, you know, one of them by himself. Do you have a, something you could tell them, send a letter to them, and he would say, are you nuts? Or something like that. <laughs> are you nuts? The letters are to churches or to leaders of churches. Um, <clears throat> so having said that, Young people, older people, I'm inviting you this morning to relish and thank God for and always be aware of the truth of extraordinary Christianity. I urge you to embrace, however, a life of ordinary Christianity. The most God-pleasing life is the one that simply loves and obeys God day by day in the ordinary odyssey in which he's placed us. I'm going to conclude with a a beautiful statement by a 19th century theologian, Scots theologian, William uh, Mulligan. Uh, he wrote this in his extraordinary, extraordinary book, The Ascension and Heavenly Priesthood of Our Lord from 1892. Uh, this is a long sentence like a lot of the older writers. They wrote long, so you have to think about it as we're going along. The highest idea of Christianity is not that where under the mighty impulse of a first outpouring of the divine spirit, miracles may be wrought, and in the agitation of society, striking things be done. But that where the agitation has subsided, where what was felt to be only supernatural and extraordinary has so 
identified itself with the heart and life that it has become natural and ordinary. Where God is not less, but more present than before. Present everywhere and in all things. And where he shows his presence by the depth rather than the commotion of the pious feelings which he awakens by the calmness rather than the agitation of that river of life, the flood of which in the soul he fills. Closed quote. Our place in this world is almost always a place of the ordinary because God is just as much at work in the ordinary as he is in the extraordinary. Father, thank you for these truths. I ask that you would please affix them to our hearts. Forgive us for so chasing after the extraordinary and extraordinary experiences and emotions and the bizarre that we walk and skate right by the ordinary means of grace that are in their own way every bit as extraordinary precisely because they're the routinization of all of these great redemptive events. Thank you for these dear faithful people of God. May what is said today fall on the good soil and be understood. Please change me, change all of us. Help us to be more faithful to you as a result of these truths. We pray it, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.